Hello and welcome to the new China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. For our latest instalment of the China Research Group Talks on China podcast, we are thrilled to be joined by Molly Roberts. Molly is an associate professor of political science at University of California, San Diego, where her research has a specific focus on methods of automated content analysis and the politics of censorship in China. Molly also authored the fantastic book Censored, Distraction and Diversion Inside China's Great Firewall, a groundbreaking and in places surprising look at contemporary censorship in China, which was listed as one of foreign affairs best books of 2018. Molly, thank you for joining us during your morning, our evening, and we'll see whether a divergence in our energy levels emerges during the the course of this podcast. Why don't we we start with taking a a look back to your past um, and how you got into this this world of studying um, censorship and what was your entry point for studying censorship in China specifically? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. Um, So I started studying uh, censorship in China when I was a PhD student at Harvard, and I I had studied China for um, a a lot of time in undergrad, and I'd also done a lot of work studying statistics and machine learning. And so um, I um, had this opportunity to look at blogs in China, which at the time, so this was 2009, I guess, this was a long time ago, (laughs) Uh, the time blogs in China were uh, sort of really interesting and new and exciting. And uh, my advisor, Gary King, had a whole bunch of of, uh, blog posts uh, from China, um, uh, scraped from China. And he uh, approached me and Jen Pan, um, who were both graduate students at the time, and said, do you guys want to work on these? Could we do some automated text analysis, which we were all interested in in that time, and try to measure, for example, public opinion on these blogs. And um, we said, sure, this sounds really interesting. And so we started trying to measure sentiment on blogs on certain topics. And we kind of, uh, you know, we had we had thousands and thousands of, of blog posts so that we had really had a big data set. And at some point during this time, we uh, sort of clicked on one of these Uh, So we had like the text of the blog, and then we also had the URL to it. And we would click on the URL because we kind of wanted to see the blog and the context. Uh, You know, was there a picture? Was there advertisements? How was it laid out on the website? And we realized that some of these blogs had gone missing, that we would go back to some of these URLs and that they they would get an error. And so we realized what we could do was set up a program basically uh, to go and check and see which of these blogs have been taken down and which one was up. And then we would have the text of the censored posts and the text of the uncensored posts. And by comparing these, we could kind of understand the logic of this online censorship um, in China. And so we did this across um, lots and lots of different blogs, lots and lots of different topics. And what we discovered was that at the time, so this was data coming from 2011, when we finally got around to figuring out how to do all of this, uh, at the time of really the focus of censorship on the blogosphere in China was on uh, collective action events, so protests, um, people who could organize collective action, these types of things. And, um, and then we actually went back and validated this 
with uh, by doing an online experiment where we signed up for a hundred different uh, BBS sites, blogs, etc., and then we posted. We designed an experiment to post uh, social media posts on certain topics, some about collective action, some not, some criticizing the government, some not, and we found that again that. Uh, collective action was very predictive of censorship, but criticism was actually not. Um, and so that's how I got into studying uh, studying censorship in the first place. So yeah, I, I think for listeners who maybe um, aren't as f- familiar with your your work here in the the UK, um, your early work that you're discussing formed th- this seminal study, I guess, on the the logic of censorship, um, a study that has become famously known now as the the KPR paper. You mentioned Gary King, uh, who, who was your advisor. He was obviously a, a key inspiration and, and part of the paper. And I think the other co-author was was Jennifer Pan. Um, so you have King, uh, Pan, Roberts, KPR. Um, and for those who aren't aware, this was this paper was the the, the sort of first large scale multiple source analysis and reverse engineering of the outcome um, of what is perhaps the the most extensive effort to selectively censor uh, human expression, obviously implemented, um, but by the Chinese Communist Party, um, and that study was was published in in two thousand and thirteen, I think, um, and I can include it in the the podcast notes. So I, I guess looking uh, looking forward a bit from the the KPR study, uh, how have you seen the the tools and mechanics of, of censorship changing in China since then? And how would you go about this kind of study now? Yeah, so censorship has changed quite a lot, I think, since that paper. And part of it is that the tools have really changed quite a bit. So um, one of the things that has changed is now real name registration is required for um, most social media websites. And this was not true when we were doing our experiment. And so it'd be much more difficult now to do an experiment like this um, with uh, um, online. Um, the other thing um, that has changed is the entire, actually the entire social media environment has changed quite a bit. So we were really looking at blogs and BBS sites. Um, now uh, the social media environment in China is dominated by Weibo and by WeChat um, and uh, by also by videos and photos, uh, right? So those were things that were much less common uh, during our time. So the social media environment has changed quite a bit. Um, there's much more with WeChat. There's you know you still there's still some public accounts, etc. But there's also a lot of uh, private exchanges, right? Um, it's sort of so sort of WhatsApp and WeChat, like little groups, right? That have really changed the way that people are um, are using social media. Um, and so the, the, the environment's changed quite a bit. The structure of social media has changed quite a bit. And also the tools for censorship have changed quite a bit. Um, you know, we used to see a lot of uh, some automated filtering based on keywords. We still see that to some extent. But we also see more uh, sort of complex uh, types of censorship, um, stuff that Citizen Lab uh, has documented, automated censorship based on images um, or on other types of machine learning. We also see um, other types of uh, methods to um, uh, channel attention to certain uh, posts and away from others. So you can't comment on certain posts 
posts, you can comment on other posts. These posts tend to be more highlighted. These other posts are less highlighted. Um, so there's a lot of sort of technological tools now associated with censorship. And actually there's a market for censorship tools um, that we saw in, you know, happening also in 2013. And, uh, but now um, we're seeing even more and more today um, as machine learning, as uh, these tools sort of get more um, sophisticated. Yeah, I think it's it's fascinating how the the censorship apparatus has has had to evolve and adapt, but but also how some of the the new apps and, and software platforms have actually facilitated or, or made it easier to to censor content. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll get more into the minutiae of the tools and the the way in which censorship is is actually implemented in China. But but for now, let's stick on the the question of internet content and to ask a sort of very broad question. What is getting censored in China and, and what isn't? Yeah, so it's really hard uh, to figure this out. And, um, you know, so we studied this extensively um, in 2011 and 2013. Um, and we found overwhelmingly that collective action events tended to be censored and criticism did not. And, and there's sort of a logic uh, through that. So, so what I mean by that is, if you were talking about a protest event, um, about getting together for a protest, et cetera, you, those posts are very likely to be censored, whether or not they criticized or supported the state. On the other hand, a policy, and you were discussing that policy and you were criticizing government policy, that that wouldn't be censored. And in fact, um, that discussion was sort of allowed. And there was sort of this logic to it, which is that the government was using uh, social media to uh, actually understand what the public was uh, opinions were about these policies and then changing their policies based on those opinions. But the protest events were sort of immediately dangerous, right? And so that those were censored. And, and also, you didn't want information about that to get out to other people who might join in, say, on the protest. Um, and, um, and there has been work re, uh, since then looking at how governments are actually using social media to get feedback uh, and implement policy differently. And so that's certainly, that's what we found at that time. You know, since then, uh, a lot has changed politically in China. We've seen an increase overall in censorship. Um, we've seen a tightening of um, censorship, both with um, jailing of social media users, uh, with um, the technology used to delete or remove posts online, um, with um, online propaganda. So we've seen quite a bit of um, changes and tightening of censorship. Um, and I, I would expect, I haven't been able to do this study uh, since then, but I would expect that we would see a lot more than just protest events being censored now. Um, I do still think, though, that there is still a lot of criticism around certain policies online, and that is something that the government encourages to a certain extent, um, because you want some type of, it's, it's a one way to gather information about especially local government wrongdoing and other um, policy feedback, et cetera, that can help um, the government understand uh, before it gets out of hand um, what's, uh, you know, what, what the public, how the public feels. I think that's a very important overarching point um, about leaving some space for, for dissent and, and how that makes complete sense. 
I think political scientists um, have long posited that the Chinese government or, or any successful authoritarian regime is actually very effective at, at tapping into public sentiment and, and using the internet and, and discussion on internet platforms um, to perform these these temperature checks. The idea that if, if they're too too draconian, then they don't have a conception of their their potential vulnerabilities. Um, so I, I think that's a great point. To look at the user side of things, how aware are, are Chinese people um, of the censorship apparatus when they use social media sites like WeChat or, or Weibo? And, and do they have an idea of this metaphorical line that they, they shouldn't cross? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I think that there, um, there, uh, there's a lot of variation here in how aware people are of online censorship. I mean, one thing I, I, that I think some people don't realize is that actually a lot, there are still quite a number of people in China who are who don't have access to the internet or don't, aren't online, don't use social media. Um, and this is mostly older the older population, which we would see in, in other countries as well. So that segment of the population is uh, probably more unaware of, of online censorship. Um, most people around the world uh, use the internet not for politics. So um, use the internet for entertainment, for other types, uh, for work, for other, uh, for, you know, messaging with friends, video games, these types of things. And um, for these people, they may not actually encounter censorship uh, frequently. And, and especially because a lot of censorship is um, invisible. So it's difficult to see. Um, it's just that certain websites you can't access or uh, certain um, posts have been removed, but you may never notice their removal rate. And if you don't know about the websites that can't be accessed because there is an amazing internet space within China, so many innovative companies, really um, amazing uh, social media websites that um, based on surveys, we see that people don't find a reason to try to access block websites. Um, and a lot of people have never, um, you know, report at least never having experienced censorship. Um, but then there are people who talk about politics, who um, are politically active, who have more foreign connections, uh, more education, um, and maybe have traveled abroad or studied abroad. And then, and those people are very aware of censorship, right? Because they um, they know uh, that. Uh, websites that they could access when they were abroad who could not be accessed at home. Um, they maybe have encountered or have been had a post removed themselves. Um, and so we, there's definitely a big variation within the population about awareness of censorship. I think that's a really key point about the different social media landscapes um, or echo chambers even, to, depending on the user. I mean, my Twitter feed, for example, is is full of, of lobby hacks or political gossip or, or whatever. But even in the UK, that, that won't be the case for a lot of people. And yeah, you, you can easily apply that to, to the censorship context in, in China. Which brings me on to my next question really nicely, actually. I think here in the UK, that there's quite a binary view of, of censorship in China, as there tends to be increasingly with, with all China-related um, issues at the moment. But people either tend to think that Chinese citizens simply have no access to the outside world, you know, the the notion that they're, they're brainwashed, that word gets banded about a lot, or, or simply that um, your average Chinese citizen wouldn't dare challenge the the narratives propagated by the the CCB for fear of um, recrimination. So, so that's one group, and then the other group would be that 
Beijing's attempts to to censor a futile as it's it's easy for anyone who wants to circumvent the the so-called Great Firewall to to do so with a VPN. And I know you've sort of scrutinized and, and dissected this. So could you maybe explain why this this might be a, a false dichotomy? Definitely. I think you're right. I definitely hear both of those different sort of frames of um, people's experience uh, with media um, in China. And, and I definitely think that, that neither is really true, that there's sort of a different explanation. And, what, and, and really what I think is that uh, one thing that I think it's really important to know is that censorship um, is not complete in China. So it's uh, you. There's there's so much information on the internet. It's impossible to make sure that every piece of information about something that the government doesn't want online is is gone. And so, what the the goal of censorship in China is not to remove completely remove and completely remove access to everything. It's to manage information. And what what they mean by that is is to put. What, uh, what I call friction, to make small costs of access to information that they would rather people not consume. And instead to promote, which is what I call flooding, information that they want people to consume. And by doing that, this can actually have a really big impact on the social media environment. So as probably most everyone uh, who's listening uh, knows, uh, people are very impatient on the internet. Um, you know, I personally, if I have to wait for a YouTube video to load for another second, you know, I'm going to switch to another page that has, there have been many studies that show that most users are extremely impatient. They will switch to other pages. If, if a web page is slow, they won't spend a lot of time searching, you know, going past page 10 of their search results, right? And, and so information that is really at our fingertips is the, what we are most likely to consume. And so if you can put costs on certain types of information, even if that information is still possible to access, most people are unlikely to go out of their way to access it, and particularly if it's political information. So one of the biggest findings, I think, of political science is that most people around the world are not very interested in politics. Um, and this finding was really developed in the United States itself, like with these puzzles, when there started to be these really large scale surveys, is people would sort of get political facts wrong all the time, right? And, and mostly it's because we think that that people are busy, they have other things to do, they're unlikely to be politically pivotal. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to invest a lot of time in politics. And that those results have been replicated all over the world. And I think it's also true online in China that people are not likely to go out of their way to find political information. They mostly are going to um, consume information at their fingertips. And that can be very um, affected by what has um, what is easier and what is harder uh, to access. Yeah, I still have very vivid memories of of trying to watch football games at three a.m. in China with a, a VPN and the the video feed being extremely staccato, and and me that leading to me shutting my laptop furiously. Um, so yeah, that that really resonates. And that moves us nicely onto your book, Censored, which I've recommended to almost everyone over here interested in China and even just some friends down the pub. But but in the book and in other pieces you've written um, that, that you have this great taxonomy of, of all the different forms of censorship in, in China and a couple of them you've, you've just touched upon here. Um, and you call them the, the three Fs, 
I think you've mentioned the words friction and, and flooding just previously. Could you maybe provide a, a brief overview of, of the three Fs and I guess more importantly, how do you assess them in, in terms of their effectiveness? So the three Fs are fear, friction, and flooding. And I think for the most part, when we think about censorship, we think about fear. We think about people who are not allowed to say or consume certain things or else something will happen to them. And um, so you can imagine, you know, if you say this, you will go to jail. Or if you say this, you will, um, you know, lose your job or something like that. That is a lot of times what people think about when they think about censorship. So fear is like a deterrence mechanism. And that's very common in censorship all over the world and in censorship in China. There is um, a lot of fear um, uh, and self-censorship because of fear. But I think what people have focused less on that I try to sort of bring out in the book a lot more is this friction and flooding mechanism, is that you may not even be aware of censorship and you can still be affected by it. Um, your search results may be reordered. You may have certain things missing from your newsfeed. Um, some website might be slow and you might think it's just a technical glitch, but actually it's throttling. Um, and, and, and that can affect your consumption of information, even if you're not aware that censorship is happening. And even if there's no repercussion for accessing that information, if you, you know, persevered and, and, and tried to find it. Um, the other mechanism that I think people often don't think of as censorship that can act as a form of censorship is flooding. So flooding is um, putting information on the web as a way of sort of distracting or um, or uh, taking away from other information. Um, so uh, one example that I, I was given this is several different instances um, in Russia and other and other countries around the world where um, you know a certain opposition group is trying to mobilize around a Twitter hashtag, and uh, the group that doesn't want these people to mobilize, often a government or a government related group, maybe floods that hashtag with really random information to try to sort of um, make it very difficult to find the actual relevant information. It makes it very difficult for people to coordinate. So we also see this flooding online in China where people are putting information online in a coordinated fashion in order to distract from ongoing sense of events um, from, um, from other things. So um, we also think of this sometimes like jamming the airwaves, right? So making it difficult for other people to talk because you were putting that information online. Um, so fear, friction, flooding, these three mechanisms um, affect different people in different ways, right? So what I argue in the book is that fear in China is often targeted toward sort of high, very influential people, people who are likely to be able to organize large groups of people, um, uh, you know, journalists, academics, people who have a, a, an audience. Um, whereas friction and flooding are more targeted toward your average consumer who um, may, uh, you know, may not be very effective to deter people, um, especially because that actually brings awareness to censorship, right? But instead sort of nudge them away from certain information online. So we talk about how governments sort of use these tools strategically um, to, as much as possible, reduce the awareness of censorship while uh, making it um, still effective. Yeah, I think that over here, we we tend to associate Chinese censorship purely with fear. But I think that's probably only because it's the high profile cases that that we often hear about. <laughs> and speaking of high profile cases, I, I want to briefly touch upon two very recent high profile cases where we saw China's censorship machine at play. 
And the first is the outbreak of, of COVID-19. Um, so you obviously have the initial outbreak in Wuhan, the, the rush for, from news outlets to, to discover information about how the, the virus began and how it was spreading. And, and then obviously the, the, the censoring of, of doctors too, you know, the, the tragic case of, of Li Wenliang. And the second sort of case study I'd like to, to touch upon is, is more recent, the, the disappearance of tennis player Peng Shuai. I was wondering from your perspective, were these two cases classic examples of, of Chinese censorship in, in action? Or did you see kind of anything new at play or, or maybe any weaknesses uh, emerging in, in the censorship machine on the, the part of the state? So uh, a few different uh, comments here. So with um, with COVID-19, uh, what we see is, um, uh, first of all, a, a lot of a lot of uh, control of the news media at the beginning of the outbreak, right? So uh, the New York Times has reported on this. We've also seen this in our data that there's just very little reporting uh, on COVID-19 at the beginning of the outbreak. And this is sort of when the government is trying to figure out what's going on. Um, they're also sort of worried about people um, getting uh, information that might, you know, make them uh, really worried. Um, and, so, and so we see a lot of control at the beginning um, of this outbreak. But one thing that's really interesting, and um, I just wrote a paper about this um, in, uh, that just came out in PNAS, is that we do see right around the time of, of the lockdown of Wuhan, we see a big increase in people jumping the firewall. So um, we see a lot more geolocated tweets to China, which um, is an indicator of, of uh, people using Twitter in China. Twitter has been blocked since 2009. We also see a big increases in uh, use of Chinese language Wikipedia. Um, and we see um, increases in followers of Chinese language accounts on Twitter. And this is all sort of an indication that um, people are jumping the fireball from China, are seeking out information. During crisis, people are have a reason to find information, and they're more motivated to uh, pay the cost of friction, as you might think about it. And so we, I, I think what, uh, what we were seeing during that time is sort of a, a more resilience to censorship, actually. And this is also true. We see this actually not just in authoritarian regimes of censorship um, apparatuses, but we also see this in democracies as well, is that during crisis events, people, there's this um, theory called media dependency theory. People pay a lot more attention to politics. They pay a lot more attention to the media because all of a sudden it's very relevant to their immediate life. What's interesting about the censorship case is when people start evading censorship to go seek out information, we also see that other sort of unrelated sensitive political issues become more popular during those time periods. And we think that's because people, some people are evading censorship for the first time. And because of that, they're also seeking out information about other types of topics. Um, on the Peng Shui case, um, this is a lot more, it's a lot more difficult to see how this is, is viewed within China. And part of the, the difficulty of figuring this out is, you know, it's difficult to like do a survey about this, for example, within China. So this is what, this is now, you know, a very sensitive event. It's, uh, it's difficult to uh, know what people 
uh, in China know about. And so we see, we have evidence that this was taken down very quickly. Uh, these posts, these original posts uh, by Peng Shui taken down very quickly and posts about them were taken down very quickly online. Um, but we also see like big increases in search uh, volume for this case. So we know that some people know about this, some people are following it. Um, and uh, so it's sort of difficult to know how effective uh, that censorship has been. Um, and um, certainly in the, on the international stage, this is an, uh, you know, another example among many, like the NBA, um, uh, you know, a censorship uh, of certain companies in China, um, and now, now you know, uh, tennis, right? Um, that trying to figure out, you know, where is the line for the international community when it comes to uh, censorship and pressure uh, for censorship abroad. So I think this is just another case where that um, where the international community is sort of coming into conflict in China over censorship. I think that's an in- intriguing set of questions you've you've thrown up and a, a completely different rabbit hole that unfortunately we don't have time to to go down today. But I'm glad you you brought us onto the the international picture, and let's let's move on to talking about censorship out with China's borders, um, and the Wu Ma or Fifty Cent Army, um, if you want to call them that, which has become famous uh, over here for for flooding Western social media sites with misinformation or, or disinformation. A lot of MPs in the UK have probably been on the receiving end of this. Do you think it's common for, for people to be be paid on, on sites like Twitter or Facebook to, to push these, these CCP narratives? And how would you evaluate the success in, in doing this abroad and, and reaching and, and influencing foreign audiences? Yeah, so this is really difficult. And one of the difficulties about flooding is that it's very hard to tell. I mean, it's very hard to um, to detect, right? So it could be that people are posting because these are their true feelings and this is how um, want to express themselves on social media. Or it could be that this is a coordinated campaign with fake accounts that is trying to make it seem like all of these people have this opinion when they don't. And, um, and this is, I think, one of the very tricky things about flooding is that... Um, it uses the openness of the internet um, to manipulate the conversation, right? And um, and so it's difficult for democracies to figure out how to deal with this because without knowing uh, whether or not this, you know, why this person is posting or whether this is a fake account or a real account or, you know, you could end up removing an account that's actually somebody's true opinion, or you could be removing something that is really a covert operation by uh, a nation state. And and so I think that this is, um, so I think there's been a lot of efforts to actually detect this coordination. And um, this, um, a lot of this is coming from places like Twitter and Facebook, where they're looking um, at data that we can't actually see, right? They're looking at um, you know, data um, uh, about, you know, uh, patterns, uh, you know, timing patterns or groups or whatever, trying to figure out, okay, is this a coordinated effort? Does this, in, in that case, violate our, our platform policies? Or is this something that is really authentic uh, uh, behavior? So I think, and, and we, we, there has been um, some accounts. So there was a, a you know big takedown of a whole bunch of accounts that they uh, thought were coming from a coordinated effort uh, 
uh, from China on Twitter. Um, and then those have been made available to actually researchers to look into what exactly was happening with those coordinated accounts. Um, so there have been certain some evidence that this has been happening um, and it's just really difficult to detect and, and therefore it can be very effective, right? And so um, I think this is definitely, um, you know, something that we have to keep an eye on as we go forward is, um, you know, uh, how do we protect our open internet at the same time of not censoring, right? Um, just like uh, we sort of object to, right? So we have to figure out how um, to detect this type of inauthentic behavior rather uh, well at the same time protecting people who have those opinions and want, and want to talk about them. Yeah, that idea of promoting the the open in, openness of the internet versus uh, national security considerations and, and potentially pernicious influence from hostile states seems to very much be the the next big battleground or question for policymakers um, and internet giants to to tackle. And to just round things off today with a, a final um, broad or, or almost existential question, we thought that the internet would be this great liberating phenomenon, uh, allowing citizens uh, across the globe to, to access information freely and connect. You know, Bill Clinton famously said that controlling the internet for, for China would be like trying to nail, I think it was nail jello to the wall. But it, it seems that China has, has actually been successful in, in nailing jello to the wall. So, so why is this, this great liberation, if you like, not happened? And why does the internet actually perversely seem to have become a tool for enabling authoritarianism, if anything? And this is just a really important discussion. Um, you know, what what does the internet do? Does it, um, you know, enable more openness and more um, communication and more freedom of expression, or does it enable um, more surveillance and um, et cetera? And I think it's really kind of depends in the end of how we decide to design it, right? Um, and um, certainly there are aspects of the internet that allow people to connect with each other, to share information that um, can really benefit um, uh, democracy. Um, you know, certainly there are ways in which the internet has, um, can enable, um, people who maybe didn't participate in the democratic process before to participate in it now and or to connect with other people who can. At the same time, the internet, you know, has the ability to record and surveil in a way that is sort of unprecedented and surveillance itself, um, really, um, strengthens, uh, authoritarianism. Um, and so I, um, you know, I think it kind of, uh, as a tool, it can, it can either be designed to promote or designed, uh, to, to promote democracy or designed to repress it. And, um, I think it kind of depends on the way that we decide to take it. And, and, and I think in, in the U S we have to sort of continue to have these discussions about how, um, you know, we, and, and in, in Europe too, and in, in, in the UK, how, you know, how, uh, how we um, want to design the internet and how it can be done in a way that best promotes democracy. And I think this, this, especially this problem of how do we handle coordinated um, campaigns on the internet that are, that come across as something else and also misinformation without censoring ourselves, right? And how do we decide how, where that line is and how we can promote free speech without, um, at, in a way that, that doesn't allow other people to take advantage of that, right, is uh, that's a really hard question that I don't have 
an answer to, but I think it's one we have to find an answer to quickly. Yeah. I think if either you or I did have the the answer to that, um, perhaps we might not be be sitting here doing this today. But just to finish, Molly, for listeners who want to learn more about your work or stay on top of, of what you're up to, uh, where should we direct them to track you down? Yeah, so you can go to my website, uh, margaretroberts.net, or you can also um, uh, go to 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego. We have a lot of different uh, blog posts, um, uh, faculty working on uh, China, especially with data, data-driven data work. Uh, we have uh, the China Data Lab, which we uh, do a lot of um uh, uh, data-driven uh, research on on China. Um, so please uh, check out uh, check out our website and uh, yeah, get in touch if, if you have questions. Excellent, and, and I'll include links um, in the podcast notes and on our website. Molly Roberts, thank you very much for for taking the time to join us at the the China Research Group today. Thanks so much for having me.